Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the The revolution will not be televised. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the Grindhouse Podcast. I am your host, Dave. And I'm really excited about today's guest, not only because she's a close personal friend of mine, but also because makeup effects craftsmanship is so embedded in the fabric of great horror film. In a lot of ways, makeup effects has been dazzling us film viewers since the earliest movies. The 1902 film Le Voyage das la Lune featured the famous Man in the Moon, which was a combination of makeup and prosthetics. Of course, that short film influenced the 1995 music video Tonight Tonight by the Smashing Pumpkins, which was such a visually stunning video that it, along with the Michael Jackson video Thriller and the making of, had such a profound influence on me wanting to be a filmmaker. Alyssa and I first worked with each other nearly nine years ago on a modern-day take on Strangers on a Train called Breaking the Girl and have since worked on four other projects, a couple of which we talk about in this episode. So get ready, strap in, and enjoy as I talk to a legendary makeup artist, Alyssa Morgan. Well, thank you for joining us here on the Grindhouse Podcast. My good friend and makeup artist and special effects makeup artist, uh, extraordinaire, (laughs) Alyssa Morgan. How are you today? Not too shabby. Not too shabby. I mean, COVID. Things. Yeah, so that's a that's a big thing that people are curious about. I mean, even us in the industry, how how has um, COVID been treating you? Are you uh, have you done any sort of work? Is it all stop down? Like what what's where are you at right now? Well, I was I was actually working on a production when it started, and then everything went completely dark. Um, there's been no um, no jobs filming in LA. Um, up until this point. I think that some of the studios just opened up uh, last week and that they're talking about a couple other ones opening starting next week. But even with that, um, like I was called about a show um, last week and before COVID they had five weeks of prep sort of built in for building the sets. But the producer was saying now uh, it could be anywhere between eight to 10 weeks of prep because they're going to have to cut down how many people can actually be on those stages. Right. Right. I think they're just starting to like figure out how this is going to work and, and everything. So it's like, unless you can work from home right now, which I luckily have been building some uh, prosthetics to send away to a client. But uh, aside from that, there's really been nothing going on. Yeah, it's been a challenge for everybody, especially because so much of film is a hand hands-on experience. You know, people have to sort of be there on set. Um, but let's let's backtrack a little bit. Let let's let our audience who may not be familiar with you kind of get an idea of what got you interested in film work or makeup work or both. Um, <laughs> uh, the thing that got me interested in doing makeup specifically is. Um, it's a, a film called Dune from 1984. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's historically uh, David Lynch's prof- self-professed failure of a movie. Um, but I loved it. And, and there was so much disgusting stuff happening in that movie. And I was like, man. And then cool stuff as well. But I was like, man, I want to do that. So that was the movie that really set it off for me, I think. And then... I mean, obviously, there's, like, a bazillion others, like, Legend, um, 
Tim Curry playing darkness was an, another thing where I was like, man, I want to, I want to make monsters. I want to make creatures. So right. I actually first started off doing uh, beauty makeup, um, mm-hmm. working, working for, um, like photo studios and things in New York. And then I, I fell into, uh, special effects just by chance. I was working on like a, a TV show called dead men talking on biography channel, which was like a forensic psychology show. And, okay. um, they said, do a little bit of special effects. And that was sort of my, my first, uh, you know, dip my toe in the water of, of effects makeup. And I, I actually, I don't know that I'd say I like it more, but it's certainly more interesting to me. And, um, you're awake a lot more on set. (laughs) You have to, you have to keep on your toes with effects for sure. So, so, so it sounds like you sort of found your way back to the thing that initially interested you in film in the first place. Did you, did did you get into beauty makeup um, with the hopes that it would eventually transition into special effects or was it more something that like maybe as a kid, you liked all those monsters effects and it was tucked in the back of your mind then life took you down the road of beauty makeup and that transitioned you into film. And then you just found yourself back where you kind of initially wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of both of that. I, I was in college for, um, fine art and graphic design. I was like sculpting and, and painting. And I was thinking to myself, man, um, how am I going to make a living being an artist? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, because I was in school in New York City, there were a lot of people who I knew that were models, and they were like, oh, you know, you're really great with painting. You should try doing makeup. It's kind of the same thing. And I remember, like, my first photo shoot, I was helping out a friend. She was giving me, like, 50 bucks, and when I got there, there were, like, six other models who needed makeup, and I got, like, 100 bucks off each of them. And I was like, damn, I, I've been chilling today. And so I sort of was like, I could do this for a living. And, um, you know, with having the background in sculpture and fine art, I when I sort of got into the world of special effects, it was a very easy transition for me because I had that foundation as an artist in general. Um, right. And then and then the contacts from doing the beauty makeup helped lend itself to then landing jobs doing special effects for film and TV too. So you mentioned Dune being one of your earliest inspirations. Are you excited about the remake that's coming out? Have you seen any of the trailers or anything? To be honest, I haven't seen any remakes I, or any uh, trailers for the remake. But I am. I am. I'm always interested when there's a reboot. Um, typically, I'm never impressed. <laughs> uh, right. Because when something is especially like dear to your heart and then they redo it you're sort of like why i mean like ghostbusters reboot with the women that was like a cool premise but it still fell short i thought in terms of like the franchise um but that being said i'm i'm always interested to see what um what happens uh with with the new and improved ways of doing special effects there's always you know unless they end up going the route of visual effects which you know, it could be a bummer when you're an effects artist to see visual effects, but when they marry effects um, together with VFX, I think, you know, you kind of sometimes get like a good uh, outcome. So I'm excited to see stuff, but we'll we'll see how I feel after I've watched it. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting too because like, um, you know, they've been talking forever about making a doing a Crow re- uh, reboot or remake, mm-hmm. and. I'm as much as I love that movie, and I actually love the sequel too. Sort of a guilty pleasure, I guess, but. Um, I'm not so against it only because due to the unfortunate circumstances around Brandon Lee's death, so much of the movie deviated from the comic book. Right. And so like we never saw the Skull Cowboy. We've never seen some other aspects of it. So I'm interested to see when uh, when there is a reboot or remake when it 
it, it aims to get closer to the original uh, inspiration. Right. If they can do that. Uh, but sometimes, like with, um, you know, speaking in the world of monster effects, when you have like a Friday the 13th remake or Nightmare on Elm Street, a lot of what made those movies so great in the beginning was the time period that it came out, you know, mm-hmm. what was going on in the world, especially slashers. Sure. And and also, like you said, there was a there was a time period when makeup effects was a much vaulted and respected profession. And people really loved I mean, people became sort of celebrities based on uh, makeup effects like a, a Tom Savini, for, sure. for example. Oh, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, with the advent of visual effects and, and the widespread use of it, to some degree, that's probably gone away some, I would suspect. I mean, yes and no. Like, I, it's hard because I think about a lot of remakes to, for instance, um, the new Child's Play. Um, and I, I know the makeup people that worked on that. So it's hard to say that it was crap because I don't want to throw anybody under the bus or right. say that it was crap. And not that it was. It was just there was something about like the old school Chucky doll, for instance, being crude as it was um, that made it scarier. Like it maybe right. wasn't super lifelike. But I think that sometimes that takes a takes you out of it when it's too lifelike. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because I, I do. I think you can sniff out the VFX when it's too real. You know? Yeah. Well, um, I have a whole theory surrounding this. So I always use these two movies as an example: Dark Crystal, oh, the original the or the series, um, and Avatar. Okay? okay. Two movies that deal with with the supernatural world. There's no, mm-hmm. well, I guess Avatar has some human people, but it's mostly set in a supernatural world, right? Right. There is something about Dark Crystal that feels so much more tangible and real, and it's easy mm-hmm. to suspend disbelief and immerse yourself in the world, even though it's very evident that their puppets and their movements, like you mentioned, are crude and kind of awkward and what have you. Somehow that all lends itself to it. Totally. Yeah. With Avatar... I mean, even I'm sure by now, if I went back and watched Avatar, the, the effects probably don't even hold up to now. But at the time, it was pretty lifelike and it was very smooth movements. But there's, I, I feel like when something is too lifelike, but not, but not lifelike, right? When yeah. you get when you get close to the edge of it without actually crossing over into something that looks realistic, yeah. your brain recognizes it as a fake. I'm like, oh, it's a video game. Right, it's a video game. Yeah. Right, your brain automatically is like, that's close to real, but it's not real. Whereas with something like um, you mentioned Legend, for example, the makeup effects in Legend. Or so amazing. Even, you know, for me, I was hugely influenced by Michael Jackson's Thriller video. I was going to say that up. was like maybe my number two thing was watching that. Because um, the making behind, of? The behind the scenes DVD. Yeah. I was like, wow, when he was becoming the werewolf, I was like, holy, holy crap, that's... That's what I yeah. want to do. Yeah. My uh, sure. my my dad had that saved. I think he had it taped on like VHS. Me too. You know, and so like we would always put it in. Um, but yeah, when you when you're when you're into a world that's not realistic, but the artistry is cool. Yeah. Somehow people just f- seem to be more immersed into it, more comfortable with with allowing the world to dictate the rules. I equate it to wrestling. Right. Everyone knows professional <laughs> wrestling is fake. Yeah. yeah. Everyone knows professional wrestling is fake. But if the moves look good enough, if you appreciate the craft of pro wrestling enough, you'll buy into the story. And really, that's For all sure. filmmaking and, and you know, uh, stage work is it, it really is. Right. I, I saw someone say once um, it's not about creating disbelief. It's about creating doubt. Yeah. 
You just need yeah. a kernel of doubt. If the mm-hmm. audience can just believe for a moment that this is feasible, even though they know it's not, they'll buy in. Right. And I think whenever you try to convince people it is, look how like how real it is. If it's not, then the brain will reject it. Right. Yeah, that's actually really smart. It's a good it's a good way to think about it. I, I like um, I worked on this uh, this series for IGN, the Game Network. Yeah. Um, it was um, it was a show a series commemorating um, uh, Resident Evil. The, but they okay. took the they took the characters from the game, and instead of the movie franchise, they followed the storyline more closely to the game. And the director he did some really um, incredible things with that short series. It's called Project Sarah. You can okay. find it on YouTube. Um, but they they did these three sixty shots where you know we had all the zombies and we had the you know the main characters with the weapons. And, you know, they'd, they'd run up into an action sequence and then they'd have everybody freeze um, and they would take the 360 camera and kind of walk around the entire room. Mm-hmm. And then in, in post, they would do these really in, amazing like VFX shots where they'd have the bullets kind of in slow motion going through the air and then, you know, blood splatter kind of coming out uh, wow. from like a zombie tearing some, somebody's neck apart or something. And, right. and then when, the, when you saw the finished product, um, it was this really cool thing that they were able to do where you were like, wow, see, this is how visual effects and yeah. special effects can be married together in a way where you're not like, oh man, I'm totally taken away from this. I'm taken out of this because it looks uh, too the monsters VFX, you know, it, it, it was video just a perfect. Yeah. It was a perfect marriage of the two where you had, you know, the value of practical effects and then the value of visual effects and made this, you know, moderately low budget project look like super high budget. Absolutely. And that's always the best usage of both really, when you can combine them and you can clean up the seams more than you do just replicate the whole monster. Totally. So you mentioned that you came, You are you from the East Coast originally? Uh, yeah, I'm from Connecticut. I lived in New York City for 10 years and then came out to LA somewhere around 2008-ish. So what brought you out here? And is it was it a bit of a culture shock? It was totally a culture shock. Um, I, I think I just wanted to try something different. After living in New York for so long and, you know, I don't think I've ever worked as much or as hard as I did when I lived there, but mm-hmm. um, the cost of living was so high for, for what you got. I was like, you know, let me try the West Coast where the weather's a little So L.A. was the cheaper, and- more, more cost-effective housing place? No, but you get more bang. <laughs> you get more bang for your buck. You know, like in LA, I pay probably the same as I would have paid for a three-bedroom apartment for a three-bedroom house. Right. So you have a little bit more space. Um, you know, being that I lived in both Brooklyn and Manhattan for the split up over those ten years, there was like definitely more sense of community, and you could visit people a little bit more freely um, when you lived in the city versus. Out here, you know, if somebody lives, you know, more than fifteen minutes away from you, you're never gonna see them at your house. Unless yeah, like you, have, you have to make plans. Thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've we've talked about that with a bunch of my friends. Where coming from Texas, where someone could have a house. You usually, you know, if a few of your friends would get together and they'd have the house that everyone hung out at. So at any right. given time, there was like twenty people at a, in one person's place. Whereas here, everyone's mostly in apartments. And if someone has a house, they're kind of further out, and mm-hmm. you have to make plans. 
to yeah. some degree. Yeah. But I mean, work-wise, it wasn't, sorry, work-wise, um, you know, it's the same old, same old, but socially and friendship-wise, like, life-wise, living out here is totally different than, than New York, but, but work-wise, right. it's kind of the same. And I was going to ask you, were you already working in film by then? Yeah, I, I had um, I had been in the union in New York for about a year and a half, um, and had done you know some some low budget features and a, and one TV show out there, and then a couple different like packaging for shows, commercials and stuff, and then I came out here and it was the writer's strike when I got here, and then also I found out that the union for makeup here didn't offer reciprocity, so I had to start all over again to wow. you know. So for a while, I put it off. I was like, ah, forget it. I'm not going to, you know, go through all the emotions of putting my hours together and pay a fee all over again. But, you know, as as the coin flipped out here, you you kind of have to, if you want to work on projects that are, um, have any, have any traction, you have to, you have to be in union. So I bit the bullet and did it again. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Um, when when did you get out to LA? What about when? What year was it roughly when you moved? I actually think it was two thousand seven. It, it was uh, September two thousand seven that I got here. Okay. Now was this before or after the show? The, oh, <laughs> uh, it was it was uh, before the show. I the sh- I'm assuming you're referring to the real L word, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't know how <laughs> yeah. much one to like, get into that again. Yeah. Uh, I I mean whatever. I I was a uh, I was a background feature on that show because my best friend was like the main person on that show. Mm-hmm. But we were here a year, um, or I was here for a year, and then my best friend moved from New York out to LA as well, and uh, I hired her to work with me on, on a job, and it just so happened that one of the other girls that I hired to work with me on the job is just like helpers. Um, the girl, who, The other girl who I hired, her friend was one of the writers on The L Word, and mm-hmm. she had kind of put the bug in my friend's ear to say, hey, they're going to start a reality version of that TV show. And that girl was kind of too nervous to go and do the audition alone. So I convinced my best friend, like, hey, go with her. And um, right. the two of them, they, they went and my friend was the one that got it. And I was excited for her. But then she came home and she was like, by the way, uh, they don't take you away somewhere they shoot it at your house and she was living with me in my guest room so she was like so if oh, you no. say they can't if you say that they can't shoot here then i can't be on the show so as much as i didn't want to do it myself um i kind of had no choice because i didn't want to break her dreams <laughs> no that's understandable and now did that help you like professionally at all no um you know i don't want to say it, it it's a <laughs> I don't think it helped. I don't think it hurt either. Um, I I think I may I may have met some people uh, that I maybe would not have met had I not been on the show. Um, mm. For instance, um, I did end up meeting a couple um, celebrity musicians um, that hired me because either they had met my best friend who was on the show or they recognized me from the show and they thought says because I'm so lovable <laughs> why not hire why not hire her to work with me so you know like I have um it, ha- it hasn't hurt me um but I don't think that it um boosted my career at all um ironically a lot of my work was sort of um 
overshadowed because my friend, um, who my best friend Whitney, who who was on the show, was like the main person, because she had moved out to LA and didn't have a job and was working as like my kind of assistant. She said that she was a makeup artist, so that she didn't mm. come off like she didn't have a job. So a lot of people thought that my work was her work. <laughs> I see. And I. I didn't really have the platform to be like, hey, that's not true. It's it's mine. Um, so she sort of took a little bit of that shine for a minute, which it, it is what it is. But um, I never wanted to be famous uh, in general. But if I if I ever got any kind of notoriety, I wanted it to be for my work and not for um, a reality show. Yeah, I was just reading an interview with uh, Effie Brown, who was on um, oh, what was it Project Greenlight? And she had joined Project Greenlight right after she had uh, left the company that I worked for. I used to work underneath her. And yeah, she was my she was my boss for about six or seven months. And um, and then she left uh, uh, the collective and she went to go join or whatever it was called at that time. Um, and she went to uh, she joined that show and she was just saying this interview how she wasn't paid to be on, like uh, on the reality portion of the show. She was only paid as a producer for the movie within the show and how it kind of had an ad in some ways it had an adverse effect on her career afterward, because there is a part of yourself that's put out there to the public that may or may not actually reflect you or not. I mean, you, you weren't a main character, so that's good, but yeah. I don't know if there was any sort of fallout from that that sort of derailed you from what your real passions are. No, I, I mean, it- at the time when 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 the show was airing, I definitely like would go online and, and read what the reviewers were saying. And to be a hundred percent honest, like Entertainment Weekly did a bit I'll never forget about our show, and they were like the only saving grace and white light of the series was Alyssa Morgan. <laughs> I was, they loved me because I was like honest. I wasn't like getting drunk and naked and like making really horrible life decisions. I was always kind of like the den mother that was giving all the. Right. Like the advice and telling people like to get their shit together so <laughs> i came out looking like a you know a polished diamond in comparison to some of the other girls that were on the show so i can't complain in that regard well that's awesome <clears throat> so i was thinking fast forwarding a few years i was thinking back what our first film was and it must have been breaking the girls right yeah mm-hmm. so i think the girls. we've done five projects together something like I that i think so somewhere, yeah somewhere in that range mm-hmm. so um what got you attached to breaking the girls um, I, I think it was a combination of two things. One, Guinevere Turner, who was the writer on that show, is a personal friend of mine, and ironically also one of the writers from The Real L Word, or from, oh, the, really? L, from the L Word. She was, okay. uh, she's also the writer of American Psycho and, um... Notorious uh, Betty Page. Notorious Betty Page. She just wrote, like, an incredible, um, movie about, um, Charles Manson. I think it was called The Family. About the oh, women. yeah. I, yeah. I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. It was really good. I watched it the other day, actually. Um, so I knew her, and then the director of the movie, Jamie Babbitt, um, was a, mm-hmm. another friend as well through the grapevine. I knew her. So I got brought on because of those those two ladies. Now, had you joined the union by that point? No. And I remember, uh, like, that film wasn't union at the time. Right. And, and I was we like... flipped, though, right? No, no. That was the thing. It was about to flip. Um, Hmm. because I think, I think ironically the craft service person like called the union to say like, 
Sounds yeah. right. <laughs> all these people on this project are, you know, they're all, this guy's in the DGA and this, like, they, like, blew the whistle and I think, so, like, a rep came out to, like, check it out. And I, I remember crossing my fingers to be like, man, I hope it flips because I'm only, like, 40 hour or 40 days away from the, from getting my my union card, but uh, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't flip that time, no. I remember that because I was, uh, I was, that was my last, that was my last job as a coordinator. Mm-hmm. was breaking the girls and then it was right after that i remember i remember because i remember when the, the the rep came there was all these people sort of discussing well what does this mean does this mean we have to join like so for those who don't know when a show is what we refer to a show flipping is when a show that is previously non-union um through either just negotiations with the rep or oftentimes at least a a one to two day uh strike occurs and the show is uh, forcefully moved to have to make a deal with usually IOTSI, mm-hmm. um, which covers the vast majority of, of workers, laborers on a film set is the IOTSI uh, union. And they will have to agree to, their, to them to be the, um, what's the official word, um, negotiator mm-hmm. for, for most of the crew. So what will happen is a lot of smaller budgeted shows will try to start off as non-union Right, and they'll just pay you, and when and it's non-union, you're only about by state and federal law, and then the union will come and they'll say we're going to make everyone strike unless you decide to to name us as their official negotiator, and then you'll negotiate some that, which usually applies to like um benefits being paid. You, it, mm-hmm. Very often when you flip, you don't get any rate hike or anything for the actual workers, but but what can happen is you get it's a considered a union project, and therefore your days count. Yeah. But that didn't happen to this. It did not happen. <laughs> but from that project, we went on to work on um, Anna's project, Who's, Who's Afraid, afraid of, of Vagina, Vagina Wolf. Wolf. <laughs> yes. Which is not a porn, I, I must know. tell everyone. Everybody the police came by a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's such a good movie. I was just about to say that, ironically, like for, for a low-budget um, low movie budget. with a, a strange title and like fringe topic... Um, it was so well done, but I think, you know, Anna being an amazing, um, filmmaker as she is, um, she had so many great connections. Like I I think Alison Kelly, um, as a DP is, she's just such a wonderful DP. Um, Mm -hmm. she, she captured things in, in such lighting and she's just, she's an artist. I think when you have a lot of people that are just truly, um, blessed with, knowing how to handle their craft it's hard to it's hard to get something to be a flop you know and that she had a lot of really good people come together for that project yeah that was one of those projects where i remember she sent me the script i had i was not living in los angeles at the time of doing breaking the girls Mm -hmm. i had actually flown out from texas specifically to do that project i'd done a disney stop motion show earlier that year and um and so i'd already gone home Mm-hmm. By that point, and I remember she sent me the script, and I gave it gave it a read, and it, you know, for those who aren't familiar, it's about a lesbian filmmaker who's turning forty, I believe, mm-hmm. and kind of having an existential crisis as to where she's at in her career and her and her love life and her life in general, mm-hmm. and decides that going to make a hell mary uh, f- film basically mm-hmm. to win the attraction of a young art student, <laughs> and revive her film career all in one swoop yeah and 
I remember reading it, and as a straight guy, I was like, I can completely relate to this. <laughs> you totally. know, like you don't yeah. have to be a lesbian to understand it. It was a movie sure. that tackled themes that anyone, and and that to me is always a really great sign of a movie when it can really cross beyond just its initial intent. And um, I wouldn't say that that was the easiest movie to make at all. There was a lot of life imitating art, imitating life, imitating art in this sort of like endless fun house of mirrors. But um, the end result was a really charming film that I thought came out really excellent. We don't always get that luxury to work on films that we're then proud of when they're done and released, if they get released. So what are, what are some of the misconceptions that I think people have when it comes to your job and being an indie filmmaker in general? That it's glamorous. (laughs) It's anything but glamorous. I think, um, you know, when you're on set, especially as a makeup person, uh, I mean, I think, you know, from being on the producer side of it too, it's like, you're there like makeup is there like they're the first people besides the PAs that arrive on set um you know we're there with talent um and we're there until the bitter end so the days can be anywhere from you know a basic normal 12-hour day to 18 and you know I worked on a music video for Lady Gaga and we were there four days 21 days each day with like a two-hour turnaround um so, you know, it, you're, you're working really long hours. Um, and although most of the time talent is lovely, sometimes you're um, having to navigate very um, specific personalities and quirks, um, working with people who, um, you know, you just have to navigate personalities. I guess that's the nicest way to put, to put it. Um, yeah. Because you're the, you're there for so many like you're wearing so many different hats as a makeup and hair department. Where like the therapists, um, the people who calm them down, make them feel confident and secure, um, both from a mental uh, and physical standpoint. Um, and you know we become friends with everybody as well as like confidants. And, um, sometimes it's, sometimes it's a, a, a daunting task. That's all. <laughs> yeah. It does seem like your department in general ends up being sort of the, uh, confidant's probably the best way to say it or a psychiatrist sometimes. Yeah. Um, you spend a lot of time with talent, maybe more than any other department. Yeah. You know, even including the director. Yeah. And so you, you get to know them on a pretty intimate level in some mm-hmm. instances, really close level. Yeah. I mean, I've become remember, personal friends with some of the people that I've worked with over the years um, just because of that, um, you know, amount of time and effort that you put into um, the job and working with them and getting to know them. So, you know, there's definitely like pluses to it. It's not all like a, a bad thing, but, um, you know, it's certainly... Um, it can be really draining because you're yeah. doing you're doing your job that you're hired for as well as like mitigating you know all of the like emotional drama that they're going through you know in and out throughout the day or maybe they have like a bad night or weekend and they come in and they have to kind of unload it all onto someone and it, that someone is right. their makeup department <laughs> so yeah, there's not much That's in ways of sleep or rest for you because I've seen so many of your videos, not 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 just counting the, the times we've worked together, but where it's like going home after a 15-hour day or an 18-hour day or a 20-hour yeah. day and 
it's yeah. it's rough for that department in particular and you don't always have the luxury depending on the size of the film to like stagger people's calls and yeah. and relieve oneself especially as you typically department head mm-hmm. yeah Yep, and and if you're doing special effects as well, like sometimes you're on a show and it's all basic beauty makeup and that's fine um, and you can have a normal kind of day, but when there's effects involved, even with, you know, prep before the job um, and adequate hours on set, inevitably there's always something that you have to come home and kind of get ready for the next day. So, you know, after finishing out a uh, 14 or 15 hour day a lot of times you have to come home and kind of get stuff together for the next day so you kind of have a few more hours of work right when you land back at home uh before you can hit the hit the bed and go to sleep for your two hours before you have to shower and rinse and repeat (laughs) right right it's pretty brutal now from the special effects side what's um like i remember when i grew up Mm-hmm. Again, as I alluded to earlier, like makeup, makeup effects was really cool. Yeah. Like I, I was really into the band like Iron Maiden, and mm-hmm. I remember they had like you know they had Eddie, and they mm-hmm. had like these life size like mannequins of Eddie, and um, I I remember they did, there's a VHS that's available of a concert that they did, and they had a magician, who would do like little like illusions, mm-hmm. sort of like a, a precursor like a Chris Angel type guy, you know. Sure these sort of morbid uh, illusions and there was a lot of makeup effects involved in that as well that's how widespread th- that this was have you found that um that's led to any misconceptions that people might have about what makeup effects entails i don't know to be honest i'm not really sure i mean i think that some people think that it's a prop you know i think uh, as far as makeup effects go and i think when when the when you come, we talked earlier about the Michael Jackson thing. When they, whenever there's like a behind the scenes where you kind of get an idea of all of the moving parts, um, that sometimes it's not even just makeup. Sometimes it's also a combination of like, you know, um, effects artists that just do dental work, effects artists that come in that just do the contact lenses. They're all different. They're under the department of makeup, but they're all different people that all put their their touch on something that goes into creating that character and then you know then hair and wardrobe and all that um but it's not it's and it's never really just one person you know like when you take even today with with um with movies that aren't even that crazy special effects um entailed like i'm trying to think of one like bombshell for instance um Mm -hmm. that that movie there were a lot of prosthetic effects albeit very subtle, but there were a lot of effects on that. And I think that a lot of people don't even realize that like Charlize Theron is wearing these prosthetics to make her look like Megyn Kelly. Um, right. There's, there's a team of people that put these together and it's, you know, it's the beauty makeup artist and the effects artist. It's never really just one person handling all of it. It's, it's a big crew of people that, that come into play to put things together like that. That's something that I think even even within the film industry, I think maybe a lot of people don't really understand how challenging your department is often, uh, well, the positions your department's often put in. Um, right. I hate when I see contacts in a script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, oh, I just know how expensive it is. Yeah. It's a whole thing. And people don't think about that. They just think it's contacts, right? Just yeah. go and get some contacts. And it's not, right? Because the you have to bring in a to, specialist. Yeah. The actor has to go and get fitted for um, contact lenses. Um, and then 
once that happens, which is an actual doctor's visit um, to the eye doctor, then uh, that prescription, and it doesn't have to necessarily even be like a lens prescription, just the size of the lenses, then gets sent to a lens technician who puts together uh, a hand-painted contact lens that is those that that fits the diameter of that one actor's eyes, and then if it's not that particular technician, they recommend somebody else. But that person comes in, and their only job is to come in and put the contact lenses in and take them out however many times the actor needs. Sometimes I'll be the makeup department head on a job where I'm making, let's just say some mediocre rate, like 30 or 40 bucks an hour, right? And I'm right. there for a full day. Probably one of my full, films. <laughs> a, full, a full 12 to 15 hour day. That lens technician's coming in maybe for two hours and will get more, like a, a flat fee, like six or $700, just to come in say. for those two hours to put the lenses in and out. And although for you, that is like a, you know, a little miniature knife to the heart budget wise um <laughs> it takes all of the responsibility off my my hands because right. if there's a tiny piece of dust that's in the contact lens and it gets under that that lens and scratches the actor's eye like i now have relinquished any responsibility i can't get uh, held accountable for that um yeah because i don't think people understand that you're you, there is a safety element to yeah. so many of these things, For sure. especially in the world of makeup effects, right? You know, mm-hmm. we assume it with stunts and things of that nature, but yeah, you're right. You're putting something in someone's eye. Yeah. It has to be sterile. And in this world of COVID, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's just going to elevate that much further. Yeah. Right? I mean, have I'm you seen already... any of the guidelines? Uh, I have seen some of the guidelines. I mean, now it's, they have, our union has been talking about um, the most uh, in danger uh department besides talent is makeup because we're a foot or less away from the person's breathing face you know and they're not going to be wearing wearing a mask and the thing is with this whole covid thing that people don't get is like i can wear a mask and all that's doing is protecting you from me if you're not wearing a mask i'm not protected from with wearing my mask that's not how it works. Like you both have to be right. wearing a mask for me to be protected. So I think that they've been talking about how, what that's going to look like where, uh, right before production, you get tested, your test comes back and then you stay in quarantine until production starts. And then every three days or every four days are going to be testing constantly to make sure that nobody is contracting or contracted anything and passing it on. Uh, and then I'll be wearing a mask and a plastic visor. Um, they're going to try to limit how many people are in the trailer. You know, if you've never been in a makeup trailer before, there's between, I would say, uh, eight and 12 stations inside the trailer. And it's usually like, you know, three or four hair and then three or four makeup. And then sometimes there's a crow's nest or there's like some other people up there as well. I think that it's going to be every other chair now that's full. So they're going to have to get more trailers maybe. Um, and they've even talked about, um, getting taking away the on location stuff and it will be in studios so instead of having a trailer it'll be set up in a building where they can space you out you know four to six feet away from one another and having specific kind of ventilation and you know it's like a scary sort of um 
a scary thought to go back to work because right. I mean, well, we have to work, you know, we have to have to make it happen, but you know, we're in close contact with people and, and it, it's a daunting, um, thought I've always been a germaphobe and like my kit is super clean. Like my brushes are shampooed in condition after every job. And while I'm on the job there, if, if I already don't have a, I usually have a set of brushes for each individual actor. And then like my main brushes that after every face that it touches, they're all sanitized. But even now it's like, whatever I've been doing, I'm going to try to ramp it up even more. And, um, right. Because, I've because taken there's only so many precautions you can really put in place. Yeah, for sure. I've taken every free certification for COVID sanitation that the internet has to offer so far. And, you know, while they're all kind of saying the same exact thing, you maybe like glean a little bit of info that you didn't really think of before. And um, it's just really drilling into your brain, like keeping your area clean and keeping people and yourself safe. So it's it's inevitably we're going to get back to work covid's not going anywhere so it's just about how we practice this and then not getting complacent yeah i'm actually heading back to work probably sooner than most people and i'm trying to wrap my head around how to even make this doable yeah you know like um, the idea that you don't even have a makeup person on set that's in just, some instances that they're like in their own zone because you know as much as i do like touch-ups happen all the time and if we're if you're running talent back to a specific area and then back to set yeah it's um i guess we'll see it's gonna be interesting it's gonna be really really interesting is there um is there any world in which you could see yourself maybe transitioning into doing more monster effects you know kind of running like some people have uh you know warehouses or studios where they just do creation of effects and maybe moving away from the onset action as much well i mean i don't know if you can see where i'm in right now like i'm in a i do sort of make that kind of stuff already like i have a a home studio where i do that um there are uh companies like legacy and uh, i can't even start naming them because there's a a ton of them but but places where all they do is manufacture um prosthetics uh and then send them out to productions um and i'm not sure that that's really my universe i as dangerous as you can say things are right now i love what i do i love being on set um and it's going to be a calculated risk but it's a calculated risk that everyone's going to have to figure out how to navigate um because people aren't going to just quit their day job to start um figuring out a way to do a job in a bubble it's kind of right impossible so one of the things one of the reasons of the many reasons why i always love working with you is that you do love your job and it's mm-hmm. always very evident like you come in with a good attitude i don't think i've ever seen you in a bad mood on set i mean i'm sure it's happened because we all do <laughs> sure and i'm sure you've seen me in a bad mood for sure but like <laughs> but like you're always positive you're always willing to work with me no matter what the scale of the budget is i mean i think we did anna's film for you know tens Peanuts. of thousands of dollars yeah nothing <laughs> yeah you know most most people weren't getting paid um you know, I think I made six hundred dollars flat on that whole project. Me too. And yeah, and and it was like a month it was of work. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was easily a month of work. Yeah, it yeah. was. A, it was a real project. We shot eighteen days, yeah. and then you guys did pickups, which I wasn't a part of. Mm-hmm. But, um, <clears throat> you know, going from something like that to to a bigger scale project, like say, you know, and I know Lifeline wasn't a big project, but it was a bigger project. Sure. Um. 
you always have solutions to problems and you always find a way to make it work and you're always as fast as you can be without sacrificing the quality which is as a producer it's so fun to work with people who you have fun with thanks you know i mean it's hard it's all hard and and everything gets frustrating i don't think i've ever worked with you and your department's been an issue i mean I try to make sure this is the thing. And I, a producer said it to me once. You're only as good as the people below you. And not that my team is ever below me. Cause I don't, I try to have this perspective because there's always a hierarchy, but when I'm on set with my team, hair and makeup, I always say, nobody's the boss, you know, like maybe I'm um, signing the time cards at the end of the day, but like, we're all here to, to get the same job done. And we're all a team. Um, and titles are titles just in name. Um, if you have to kind of look at it like a little bit of a family when you're on set. And I always try to bring people who I know have um, the kind of skill set where if I were to have an emergency and have to leave set for the day, they can all step in and take over for me. Like, And they're all in the same sort of mentality as me, too. We're, we're like-minded. We're all there because we love what we do and we want to have a good time and put out as best of work as we are capable of doing. So... You know, it's it's part of the reason why I feel like the projects that I've worked on have been, you know, a success, uh, even if it hasn't, like, become, like, a, a huge, crazy, wild, big-budget show. I think everything has been a success in the way that we've gotten it done. It's looked as best as it could, and everybody was happy. Right, absolutely. And, and that's really it. And, you know, what you do as a department is very much the same approach, I at least I try to take as a producer, is that, you know in the same way that you treat your team, it's like the assembly of the project of the, all the different department heads. It really makes the difference between a hard film and a film that's maybe challenging but fun. Yeah. And it, I, as a producer, what I have found is that more and more I have less um, of the final say when it comes to crewing, which is back-ass words, but <laughs> I guess that's the way the industry is going. Right. It's a lot of, it's a lot of people straight out of film school making decisions when they've never gotten you know any real real practical experience on set sure um but when you can and when you can bring then that's why we've worked together five times mm-hmm. and we probably we honestly would have worked with each other more times except again to you know sometimes it's not always up to me for sure um what is what is it that thing what is it that keeps you so passionate like what's your what was your favorite set that you were on that you just like just had a great time and you really uh enjoy the the you know the the whole of it um, I don't know that I have a favorite set. I, I did just work. I, I wasn't the department head. Actually, the department head was um, Kat Trudeau, or Kat Bardo. She goes by. Um, I just worked with her on uh, the newest season of Reno 911, and I was just a day playing makeup artist. But that was a, a killer job. That was a lot of fun. Um, and then also some of the promo projects that I've done. Like I did the promo for uh, the Strain on FX. And that was a huge team of people. Um, Carrie Herda was the head, the makeup department head on that, and um, and also the American Horror Story promos from last season, which was also Carrie Herda as well. Um, it's just some of the stuff is it's some of the the reasons why it's a favorite is like Reno, what the the subject material, like the subject matter was hilarious, and the cast was so great, and uh, the way that they shoot the episodes like run and gun, it's like they would do everything in like one or two takes and keep going. And that was really interesting to watch and a lot of fun to be a part of. And 
then the uh, the promo stuff was really cool because we were on like a, a really uh, fun location in the middle of nowhere and a huge team of makeup people that were all a lot of fun to be around um you know there's always like something that you can pick out to say like oh that was my favorite or this was my favorite it's just really the doing the, the work is what makes it my favorite you know like right I, I can't necessarily say that one job was better than the other because there's always a piece that you can take away and say, man, that was awesome. So. Right. When, when that's a super positive attitude to, to take and, and it certainly makes the whole process of film, which again is, it's a grueling challenge often very much worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Now, I saw that you did the um, you did something with aliens, right? With the xenomorph, was that a promotional thing? What was your <clears throat> yeah. involvement with that? So, uh, Alien had their fortieth anniversary, the franchise, and a director that I work with named Ben Howdshell, He um, he does these little jobs for Tongle, and Tongle did um, a series of six short films, and though each one of those films would live forever within the Alien franchise, and each one was their own standalone. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. So I was given, we were the only team to um, actually use the Xenomorph, and they gave me a suit from the, I think it was Alien Resurrection. Okay. And it was like a damaged background suit. And uh, they they were like, here's the suit, it's totally damaged. You can have it, repair it, and repaint it to match the original uh, 1979 Alien. So that was right. really cool. I had this, you know, I had a lot of work to do on this thing, but I was like, I'm touching like a, a piece of history. Like even though it was just a background suit, it was, you know, from one of the franchise movies, and um, yeah. that was really cool. And then I made right behind me there's one I have another one up there I don't know if you can see with the light but oh, yeah. I have a couple of the ovomorphs the eggs and um, I made a couple face huggers they're around here somewhere um, but it was like you know it was really cool it was props and puppeteering um, like I had to like breathing bladders inside the um, the face huggers so when it, it suctioned onto the actor's face there was a tube inside and he okay. could blow in it and it made it look like it was breathing so oh, it was like cool, fun yeah. little fun little things that we did and um, man there were so many things about that I that short that I loved but also were like oh my god like day one I remember talking to the producer and I said uh, I looked at the shot list today and you have all of the close-ups of the alien at the end of the day. And he's like, yeah, so what? Uh, <laughs> and he was like, um, you know, we'll, we'll get to it. And I said, maybe we should shoot the close-ups first just because there's an old suit and like, what if anything happens? And he's like, oh, I'll take it to the director. And within like 10 minutes of that conversation, the, the actor who uh, was in the suit was blind because the helmet of the head was just blinds you. Um, right. We were shooting in a, a spaceship set that was totally dark. And one of the actors had like a prop weapon and he swung it back at the same time the action of the, the guy in the Xenomorph oh, no. suit stood up and it came down and like hit the top of the head, which is made of like a thin, brittle plastic and smashed it into like a thousand pieces. Oh no. <laughs> and, yeah. And so then they brought it to me on set the day and they were like, can you do anything with this? And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> so <laughs> I like ended up having in my kit, like um, 
super glue and like this like spray that you can spray on super glue to like freeze it dry immediately and I just like I remember taking like toothpicks and like one of the guys from the art department was helping me like hold things together with toothpicks and then like zapping it with the zap gap to spray wow. it and we fixed it and it was like nearly perfect um to finish out the rest of the day but I was like oh man if if I if they had just listened to my, my like advice of like maybe we should shoot this shit first oh yeah. But well, it's it's a challenge, I think, sometimes. Like I, 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 for myself, I know that as I've grown as a producer, um, learning to communicate with the department heads is paramount because yeah. they really should be. If you've made a good hiring decision, they should be experts. They yeah. should really know. And if you've made the right hiring decision, they should be working for the in the benefit of the project. You know. Yeah. And um, I remember when I was a second AD, I used to get yelled at constantly by the makeup department. <laughs> because I was asked to go tell them to hurry up. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I'm sure on your end, you've had a million second ADs or, or PAs walk up to your door and be like, how much longer? And you're like, it's as long as I say it's going to be. Yeah. Um, but when you learn to really open up the <clears throat> communication lines and you can plan better, then you reduce a lot of that. I mean, sometimes it is just what it is. Yeah. But, when I, but when lot- I s- Sorry, when I say 10 minutes, it's really 10 minutes. <laughs> Right, which is so helpful yeah. because nothing irritates me more than when someone says 10 minutes and it's 20 minutes. Yeah, or 45. That's when, that's when Dave gets a little frustrated on set. Totally. But um, but you have always been wonderful. You continue to be wonderful. Thank you. Um, you're super talented. Your artwork is amazing, and it is that. It's art. You know, Thanks. from working with you on beauty stuff to adding even you know some prosthetics, it's always really a pleasure, and, and it's always really nice to have responsible creative people at the helm of something that is so important as makeup i I, we we've only scratched on the surface of some of its applications but there's a lot more makeup effects than i think people realize even beyond beyond like you know specifically like a scary movie for example for sure yeah do you have a film that's sort of a do you like horror movies oh yeah even doing monster effects do you have like a favorite that that especially as it relates to effects that you just love I mean, I've got a few. I mean, there's uh, Gary Ullman. He's played so many uh, amazing character transformations, but maybe him, Dracula and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. Um, and then Pan's Labyrinth, the, the monsters in Pan's Labyrinth blew my mind. I think that was like David Marty who did that. Um, and then there's like goofy stuff. Like I was like a huge fan of Little Monsters. I don't know if you saw that. That movie was great. Fred Savage. With Howie Mandel. But, yes. Howie Mandel. Yeah. yeah. Where I, like, it's I remember, a weird movie too. It's totally being a weird. Kids movie. It's like a really creepy kids movie. But I remember like watching that, and it's it's not super scary, gory, but it's scary enough, and like it, it translates. You know, like it translates now even still. So. I mean, that's definitely, like, on my list. Um, yeah. And, and then from Dust Till Dawn, Tom, uh, Tom Savini. I think we talked about him before. Like, that's another great one. Excellent. Yeah. Or The Nightmare on Elm Streets. But sp- sp- Do you have a favorite? Uh, Dream Warriors. Yeah, nice. Dream, Dream nice. Warriors is the best one, I think. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Well, we have uh, a couple of audience questions, if you oh, would cool. like to answer them with me. Sure. Questions from Macarette. Sam V. Blair asks, Alyssa, what would you say was the easiest and hardest special effect you've had to create? The easiest and the hardest? Yeah. Okay, so the hardest 
might might have to be uh, the hardest would be when I did the prosthetics for Lady Gaga's Born This Way music video. Okay. The prosthetics themselves were super easy in terms of the design, but it took over two months to come up with a design that they decided they liked. So uh, each time we did it, it was a different plaster head, a different sculpt. Uh, I went through like hundreds of pounds of plaster and countless amounts of silicone prosthetics to get to that. Um, And then, I don't know, I guess like the easiest one would be like a tattoo, you know, on, on Lifeline, let's say, right. uh, we had a couple characters with tattoos yeah. and that's pretty, that was pretty basic and pretty easy to do. So easy as an artist. And do you, do you design the tattoos yourself? Do you, do you bring in someone to sort of do the designs? Yeah, no, I, I designed them myself. I went to school for graphic design, so I have like a little bit of a handle on, uh, like basic design work and and then also just being an artist you know you can come up with things every now and again they'll something will come across like for instance like like chicano script or something where i'm like i don't know what that's supposed to look like and you know i have plenty of friends who do tattoos so i'll say hey man come up with this design for me i'll give you a hundred (laughs) bucks and when you're doing something like the lady gaga thing where where it, it takes a long time to settle on the design is that something that you are well hey i guess the first question are you are you compensated for all that material that you use to get yeah. to the approval and then um do you find that this is a common thing um i think the bigger the talent and the bigger the budget the longer it could take and it, it is pretty standard somebody has to know exactly what they want and on that particular job i remember they said to me um it was like really vague. I think that it, it was something along the lines of they want to create something that expresses a character that is like universal love. Like what does universal love look like as a person? I don't know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a lot of trial and error to get to what that face looks like and translate it into as an alien race that was that signifies love. And even once the final product came out, I was like, does that look like love? <laughs> Right, um, right. But they bought it, so. Well, I, I used to be uh, friends with a, a makeup artist who lived in Austin, Texas, and she worked on a project with, uh, which actually kind of ties into the next question, but with a director who was doing, um, if I remember correctly, it was sort of attached to, uh, it was like sort mm-hmm. of a, a schlocky, throwback, grindhousey action film, and they would often create effects and take it to the director and the director was like, mm, these aren't right. And they'd be like, okay, well, what are you looking for? And he would sort of notoriously say, just make it look cool. Yeah. That's and so the there worst. were several rounds of tr- trying to make it look cool until they landed on something appropriate. Yeah. Make, make it look cool is like the, the kiss of death word for me. <laughs> yeah. I'm like what it, I think is cool and what you think is cool might be two totally different things. And usually right, they are. Right. It's like when I read in a script uh, and the battle ensues or the, the battle begins. It's like, okay, so now I, in my mind as I'm scheduling and budgeting, I've got to write, direct, stage, stunt, choreograph this whole scene just to get some semblance of a number that may or may not actually reflect what happens on set. Yeah. Totally. The original Anthony Prato asks, what is your opinion of Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse, the full feature? Uh, it was awesome. Like that, I don't really yeah. know. I don't know what else to say. It was awesome. <laughs> well, what's cool is, and this is funny because it really dovetails from that story I was just telling. Um, 
It was a very unique and interesting project. I mean, I love it. I mean, mm-hmm. the show is called The Grindhouse Podcast. Clearly, it, you should guess where I drew inspiration from that. Um, but, but uh, it, you know, it was, it was so different than stuff. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, oh, you can obviously see why these two guys would do these types of movies. But it was also kind of an experiment, right? Like, can yeah. you bring back this Grindhouse era with fake trailers? I mean, it was, it's almost art house mm-hmm. in its sloppiness. And I'm sad that it didn't do better. Because right. I'm really sad that we didn't, we didn't get more of these. Like to me, that had the opportunity to be like a franchise. You know, like yeah. Tarantino and Rodriguez's Grindhouse, uh, Eli Roth and Edgar Wright's Grindhouse Two. Like you could have done this infinitely. Right. And and I enjoyed the hell out of both of them, and especially uh, the you know it's appropriate that we're talking about makeup effects. The makeup effects in Robert Rodriguez's Pen and Terror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marketing. But time. it. it but it was cool because I think it inspired a lot of people. For I sure. think it, a lot of, it inspired a lot of people to look backwards. I mean, look at the success of Machete. Um, look at you know uh, even really like um like the Shaun of the Dead series. You know that that trilogy of movies where it's kind of a throwback to an older genre of horror yeah. and sci-fi and action. So hopefully, if nothing else, it inspired people to go back and check out older flicks mm-hmm. that maybe weren't uh, quote unquote good. Right. But they were entertaining, which is really what counts the most. Totally. And um, and you can still see its influences now, even if this, the film itself wasn't a financial success. Like Reanimator. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Or Brain bad, Damage. Bad movie, but also amazing movie. <laughs> Speaking of bad movies, that's also uh, amazing. Did you see Veronica? I haven't. It's worth watching because uh, it is so clearly Glenn Danzig's movie. Okay. You know, I'll check it out. Like, 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 you could tell it's his vision, mm-hmm. and it's entertaining in its own right. I was lucky enough to see it in its LA premiere with a theater full of people, and mm-hmm. it's probably uh, accidentally more of a comedy than a horror. But um, you know, people were entertained, right? And in, in the end, isn't that the whole reason for all the long totally. hours and the endless frustrations totally. and, and everything else? It's just to entertain people. For a couple hours or you know for a few days if it's a series and and bring some reprieve to some of the real frustrations of the world yeah for sure awesome well thank you so much loved having you on i always love hanging out with you even if it's for a show My so pledge. uh i'm hoping that we get to work with each other again soon totally because it's always a pleasure and it's always really fun and we gotta get those numbers up we're only at five we gotta get them up to like uh Jude and I, I think, are at 20, so we gotta, we got to bump up those numbers. <laughs> Good. Awesome. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you again for coming on. You've kind of illuminated a department that maybe most people don't really know that much about. Thanks for having me and, and letting me illuminate. <laughs> well, I hope you all enjoyed my chat with Alyssa and perhaps gained a little bit more appreciation for the craft of makeup effects. Without that department and the skilled artists that work within it, we may never have been treated to the awe-inspiring effects that turned English actor Boris Karloff into the creature, or the shape-shifting aliens that exist in uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Not to mention zombies. They don't exist without men and women who spend countless hours sharing their art with the rest of us. Imagine what horror would be if not for the craftsmanship and the skills that this department brings to us every for every movie. 
All right, well, that's all the time we have today. Many thanks once again to my guest, Alyssa Morgan. Really appreciated having her on, and we hope you guys have learned something and learned a, a little bit of a deeper appreciation for what goes into making these amazing effects that we all appreciate. So until next time, my friends, adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Just Make It Look Cool Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and now on Spotify. 